Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the Classical Queer Podcast. We're so pleased to welcome back to the show composer Florence Anna Maunders. Welcome, Flory. Hello, it's a pleasure to be back. Great. Well, it was in November 2021 we last had you on the show. And since then, we've kind of watched a bit of amazement with all the things you've been doing. I took a quick look at some things that you've put on your website. You won a Royal Philharmonic Society Prize in 2022. You've been working with London Chamber Orchestra, uh, the Midwell Strings. The list goes on and on. So perhaps the best place to start there is to tell us a little bit about what's been happening in the last year or so. Oh, gosh, um, what a great introduction. So, yes, I, I have been tremendously busy, um, which is which is great. It's what every every musician wants to be, I suppose. And um, you know, as we've kind of made this recovery from the, the pandemic and the lockdowns and so on, it's been really good to get back into music making. So, yeah, well, where to start, really? I mean, it's such such a busy, busy kind of musical landscape that I'm living in at the moment. Um, I suppose you've already mentioned like one of the, the real highlights of the of the last few months, which has been winning the um, Royal Philharmonic Society Composition mm -hmm. Award, um, which is absolutely fab. I mean, it, it's a super recognition um, as well as this opportunity to work um, in my case, with the the Cayenne Quartet, who are a lovely, lovely quartet, um, London-based string quartet, and it's also um, in partnership with the Wigmore Hall in London as well. So, um, I'm just in the in the process at the moment of of uh, working on a new piece with them and for them, um, which is um, giving its premiere next month, actually in April. Um, I think it's the nineteenth of April, off the top of my head. And that's um, in the week more. That's going to be in the that's week in more. the week more hall. Yeah, I get to play in all the nicest places. Sixty, fantastic. I think. Yeah, sixty. Brilliant place. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's been really nice working with the week more hall actually, and um, um, they've made me feel super welcome. And being able to use the hall itself as a rehearsal venue and work with the quartet there is is a, a real treat. So. Um, that's great. Uh, not not the first string quartet I've written, obviously, um, but um, this one's going to be quite new and exciting. So, um, starting starting by looking forward here towards what's coming up very soon. Um, of course, the other thing that's kind of dominating what I'm doing at the moment is my my partnerships I've got going on with uh, three different brass bands across the country. Mm. So I, I don't know what you or your listeners know about the brass banding world. Please, please, I think you should say something because they come from all over the place and I, I suspect it's different in the UK to some other places. So, yeah. OK, so the UK brass banding scene is, is an amateur musical scene. Um, but they perform at extremely high standards and it's competitive as well. So um, if you're familiar with the way that, for example, like uh, the football league is structured or something like that. So there's like the different divisions yeah. and um, <laughs> the, the, the top division, the kind of um, the champions league or whatever is, is, um, is called the, the, um, the, the championship, the championship brass bands. So, um, um, so these are the kind of the, the leading bands in the country and that the standard mm -hmm. musicianship of these bands is extraordinary. Um, 
these are these are musicians um, of the, the very highest standard, and mm. the fact they're all doing it as a hobby is utterly incredible. Mm. Um, and there's equivalents in other countries as as well. So, you know, the UK style brass band is popular kind of across Europe and in the mm. states, and you know, some other isolated outposts of civilization like New Zealand or somewhere. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's been. So for any even listeners, she didn't really mean it's an outpost of that. Yeah, outpost is a good thing to be. It's always <laughs> to be an outpost of civilization rather than a of some sort of barbarian land like I don't know Surrey or somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to listeners in Surrey. I'm sure it's lovely. <laughs> yeah, actually, I must say that that I, some years ago I went to um, a brass band sort of colliery based thing. There were the, some of the colliery bands were playing up in up in the, the Yorkshire, and and they were absolutely fantastic. I for a bunch of people who were amateur and this, it was absolutely brilliant. So fully say agree with what you say about the standard of musicianship, really really high. Yeah, so I'm really fortunate that I'm working actually with not one but three British championship bands at the moment. Um, I'm currently composer in residence with Fulham Band um, down in London. Um, fab band, lovely, lovely people. Um, um, I got the chance to work with them through the Making Music's Adopt a Composer Scheme or Adopt a Music Maker Scheme. Mm -hmm. And um, we loved each other so much. We said we can't just like break this association after a year. So um, we, we sorted out this sort of uh, composer in residence scheme to do another three years together. And, um, and then I'm also working with and playing with um, Wantage Bands in Oxfordshire, um, mm. another championship band, super high quality. In fact, I'm going to go and spend some time with them this evening because we're going to play the area championships the weekend. Um, who knows? Maybe win some shiny trophies. Um, <laughs> but um, through Newbury Spring Festival, um, I've been commissioned to write a, a new piece for them as well. So they're actually performing at the Newbury Spring Festival, which is, you know, it's a festival for world-class musicians. So, mm -hmm. you know, BBC orchestras visit, you know, Moscow Philharmonic, mm -hmm. um, Welsh National Orchestra, um, you know, they get the highest quality of, of musicians there. Um, some of them, you know, the chamber groups and so on coming through are, are household names. So the festival opening concert is Jess Gillam and her ensemble. So you know, a name I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. So um, mm. for Vantage Band to be invited to play at that concert, um, at that festival is you know, a big deal for an amateur group again. But as I say, the standard's so high and then the, the, the festival's commissioned me to, to write a new piece, especially for the occasion. So I'm creating a colossal noise for that. Fantastic. Yeah, you, you lots of brass noises. Yeah, I was going to say that. You seem to have been heading in the brass direction here for the last year to a large extent. Is that kind yeah. of by choice or just what, what sort of attracts it's, at the moment? Is that the kind of thing you're sort of feeling for, as it were? Not, no, not really. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying the whole brass band experience, but it's something I've, I've fallen into rather than aimed at. Um, and in fact, most of the music I've written over the last year has been orchestral music or chamber music. Um, mm. So it has been a couple of kind of quite big, significant orchestral performances for, um, over the last year, which sadly I can't share with your listeners at the moment because we're still waiting for the recordings to be released um, because they've been, you know, recorded for, for commercial release. We have to mm. 
yeah. have to wait for that process to go through. But um, one of those is London Chamber Orchestra, fantastic group. I'm going to go and see them again tomorrow. And the other mm-hmm. one is um, with the very well-known um, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. The, the, oh, the, yeah, yeah. The world-renowned CBSO. So I've had some great performances of new pieces of mine in the last year. Um, made Made some good sounds, some real grimy sounds. <laughs> I, with the London Chamber Orchestra, that was also, um, I think you were selected as one of their um, sort of cohorts for, um, for, for working with them for the, for in 2022, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So they ran a programme called LCO New, where they, they selected some, some composers to work with them. So it was a great opportunity not just to write a piece for the band and say, here's some music, and I'll, and I'll go off and play it, but actually to have the whole process of working with them and that collaborative development of the piece alongside them and you know not everybody has an orchestra at home to try stuff out on to see if it works i mean i'm sure there's there's some people somewhere who have like some sort of 17th century potentate they've got their own house Prin- players princess, the ha- princess the Harzi or somebody like that i think yeah absolutely yeah so it's a bit uncommon these days to be in that sort of position of wealth as a composer. So to be able to, on you know, a number of occasions through the year, work with mm. LCO and, and their conductor and their, their brilliant CEO, Josie Lightfoot, who's wonderful, a wonderful, supportive person. So of course we have we have we have a composer here with who's in a very very he's got lots of money and an orchestra in his own house. Jacob, is that right? It's true. I, I have people ready and waiting to play, but it, but it is interesting. You know, I, I I am in the luxurious position of having an ensemble that I work with uh, two times a week, and I get to like try things out with them. And it's uh, a fascinating process to see how my own interpretation of music changes because I get to work with people so closely and so frequently. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are, like in, in kind of like a residency situation where you do get to work with the string quartet or an orchestra or uh, any group continuously how does that change your writing like do you find you write things differently more specifically to certain players because you know them like what's your process yeah absolutely i think like generally that's my approach to for writing music anyway is that i'm writing for for players and not for instruments so i'm not writing for flute two i'm writing for david who's playing the second flute part um i'm not writing for a, a, a string quartet before you know a specific ensemble i think that's kind of part of the the way in which i am employed as a composer as well though in that generally uh, most of my work is commission based and ensemble based and people are coming to me and saying write for us write for this group of musicians so yeah being able, being able to work with them and see what different musicians can do and what they're interested in and discussing with them and letting some of their ideas and feedback kind of flavor the the stew that I'm cooking up is yeah it's a really important part of the process um and I do try to be collaborative obviously I'm a composer so I'm a complete control freak um <laughs> I like to you know have that mastery over every single dotted quarter note and microtonal interview interval I mean who doesn't um but there's also a time, um, and we'll talk about this when we come to um, one of my pieces um, in a bit, where it's good to really let the collaboration take centre stage, I suppose. 
it's kind kind of interesting that you, for me as a as a non musical person, about how you write for a specific person or specific quartet. What what when you when you meet these people, how do you how do you sort of assess, I guess, how you're going to do that? I mean, how how does that work in a is sort of a um, a specific term. I mean, do you sort of listen and say, okay, that's, that's the feeling I get from this person or. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've written very much music for people who I haven't already heard playing. So mm. I think sometimes the, you know, when music performers, you know, instrumentalist singers, ensembles are commissioning new music or looking for music to play, they're approaching people who are already known to them. Um, rather than, you know, just selecting someone at random from a catalogue of composers. Oh, they look interesting. Um, <laughs> it is much more a case of like, we know this person, we like what they're doing and we like them and we want to work with. So it's, it is sort of like from the outset, there is that personal connection. So I, I go and see live as much music as I can. So I think, you know, that sort of support um is is a two-way thing so if i'm expecting somebody to play some music that i've written then it'd be a bit kind of i don't know it seems a bit rude to expect them to do that without having you know already paid an interest in them like, i expect you to be them to be interested in like what i have to say musically so you know i want to hear what, what they are doing as well so i think it's a bit like um dating you know you have to be in the same place at the same time and be wanting the same thing um and then hopefully some magic funding fairy waves her wand and it happens mm. um <laughs> which is you know that's the the, mm. the elephant in the room isn't it yeah, um, yeah. i think we've talked about this last time actually about put the how anybody ever actually makes a career of, of actually writing music is always amazing really i think so these days Yes, I don't think and there's probably about four or five people in the whole country who are making a living entirely from writing music, if mm. that. And, I, and you know, I think even some really kind of well-known household names like Tom Adairs, for example, um, are still doing a lot of teaching, writing, conducting, mm. performing. Um, that's just the way it is. You, know, you get a big commission and it's thousands of pounds, and then that is your work for the next few months and it's it's consuming and you think well, that's a lot of money and so hold on i've got to actually make this last now yeah. so yeah i think we're all doing other things as well i mean i'm i'm teaching i'm playing i'm performing i'm mentoring i'm writing and reviewing um you know we had to do all this other stuff too but great so let's let's talk about some music um, and we're going to start by talking about uh, a little bit about uh, the ARC project and a track called Galactic Hallucination. So this was written, I think, after uh, COVID or at least we launched the ARC project after COVID. So maybe you'd like to say a bit about that one. Yeah, it's a great title, isn't it? It's Galactic Hallucination. Yeah, it is. Um, it. So. This was a project by um, a group called the Arc Project, a project by the project, and there we go. Um, and their kind of aim here was to bring together some trios of different instrumentalists with a composer and an artist, a visual artist. So um, 
they're particularly looking for people who were, um, you know, wanted to write something musically in response to these images. And they're these super striking images by, um, um, I think he's Yorkshire based, um, sub that way somewhere, um, artist called Desmond Clark, um, who does these amazing pictures with computer controlled pens. And so he sets up various um, algorithms or, or plotting programs and then then lets the pen like follow the, the program that he's set for it. And it produces these amazing kind of three-dimensional landscapes. And this particular one, Galactic Hallucinations, um, the, 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 the movements of the pen produces sort of geometrical sequence that looks like a sort of disintegrating blueprint for a, a, a Norman or early medieval church. Um, but all kind of broken up into into its different planes and sections going up in different directions. And sort of like the nature of the way that it's produced is with a pen on the paper. You know, it's not computer printed. It's the computer's actually drawing on the paper. So it's got these inconsistencies in places where the pen hasn't quite caught or the ink started to run a bit or it's dried out slightly. So it's got this sort of, I don't know, it's man-made, artificial, everything, <laughs> super super cool texture to it and i think that's something i wanted to reflect in the music which um you'll hear when you listen to it it's got these sort of geometric shapes and that they're, they're kind of sound shapes sound objects and they repeat and they loop and they kind of algorithmically unfold and disintegrate into the the white space of the page and then something else kind of grows out of that and there's a lot of sort of similar sounding things and things that sound like they're repeated, but actually it's very little exact repetition in the piece. Mm. Um, almost always when something's being re repeated, there's it's like with subtle changes. So, um, yeah, that's the piece really. I think, you know, sometimes it's quite hard to talk about, about music. Um, but this piece has got this really strong visual image that goes with it. So, if if any of your listeners were just to Google um, Desmond Clark Galactic Hallucinations, mm. they could probably try it right after the show, and um, you'd probably find this super striking black and white image, and just look at that idea of listening to the sounds. Go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can hear what Flory's doing. <laughs> kind of makes sense. Well, that sounds like a great introduction. Let's take a let's take a listen.
Yeah, I, I, it's it's funny you say that it um, is algorithmic in, in the way you're thinking about it, because it, it certainly sounds that way. To me, it sounds like iterative and, and uh, complex without being like unnecessarily dense. It, it feels very um, linear in a weird way. And so like algorithmic is kind of an interesting word that you you bring out. And I'm wondering what your, your kind of, um, how you piece that out. Like when you're writing it, how do you iterate on it? And how did you modulate through the different kind of forms of the themes? What was your process? Yeah, that's a good question. Cause a lot of composers do have some really kind of strict, almost mathematical process based ways of working with sounds. And my sort of manipulation of this piece, and I think I do work the material quite hard in this piece and make it do lots of things, but it's almost always intuitively led. So mm. I'm not working with stacks of prime numbers or um, mm. you know some kind of um, quadratic equation or um, you know there's nothing you can chart or graph there. It is intuitive, and I think that's something I've, I've really learned with working with sound is because it takes place in time and across you know, through this, this fourth dimension, um, it's really difficult for a listener to perceive relationships that might be very obvious on the page yeah. or in, you know, when you look at the score or count bars or something, stuff that's, that's visual or mathematical very often can't actually be heard. Mm. So um, I think it's, you know, one of the wonderful things about some music, for example, like some of Steve Reich's process pieces, like the process is really obvious. It's on the surface because it's a very simple process for adding or taking away notes or moving similar patterns in and out of sync with each other. Mm. Um, and I certainly don't want to go, you know, bashing composers who do compose by process, but you know, I, I just found that like when I rely on on the algorithm to generate stuff. It doesn't do what I want. And that's mm -hmm. kind of interesting because then you, you get sort of interesting results, but they're kind of, they're in the control then of the process and not in the control of me. And I think, as I said before, I am a bit of a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> I, fair point. I mean, I think there's, there's something really, uh, you know, those of us who, who play and write music, I mean, we think it's so obvious that the, the, the algorithm or the, the, your quadratic equation obviously can be perceived by both player and listener, but it, it isn't. And it often produces this kind of cold uh, music that doesn't actually do something satisfying to the, the listener or the player even. And so it's interesting that you, you kind of come at it, I hate the word organic, but like organically uh, in, a, in a process way. And do you, do you also write that way... Um, for the instruments, like your maybe composition itself in the notes, but also the way you write for the different players in that trio? Yeah, I mean, I'm a woodwind player myself, and it is a woodwind trio. So I think, you know, I'm thinking about the actual way in which instruments are physically played as well. So, I mean, it really is just about finger position, lip position, air pressure mouth shape um and it's just those variables and it's kind of like i'm thinking at the sort of physicality of making making these sounds so when you listen to the piece there are some i don't want to use the word the extended techniques because you know these are just they're just techniques 
they're not the, the techniques you learn when you when you do your grade one ABRSM exam, um, because you know a lot of the, the techniques that people are taught in music schools and conservatoires are the techniques of the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth centuries. You know they're historically very staid, but you know these are all just different ways of using that column of air and the way making the air inside the instrument vibrate in different ways. Mm. Get some cool sounds. It's got to sound good, otherwise there's no point. <laughs> I mean, that is very true. And I think, you know, winds, I'm also like a woodwind player. Like there's so much opportunity for color that we don't explore. And there's so much opportunity for like timbral shift that we uh, kind of lose if we don't think about the instrument, think about the player, think about who's mm. playing it, how they're playing it. That's yeah. what I really like about your your music, it was, and it's that's why it's interesting to me that you write brass band music. Again, incidentally, you've kind of fallen into it, but it's it's incidentally funny that you you write for brass because similarly, like brass has so many sounds to explore that I think are left a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean the piece I'm creating at the moment for Tridiga Town Band, which is one of Wales's leading ensembles. Um, for the Felica Morgan Festival is is basically all around tomba exploration. There's there's no melodic or rhythmic material at all, really. Mm-hmm. It's just it's all about sort of washes of tomba and changing instrumental color. Yeah, it's going to be very beautiful when it's done. Hopefully, yeah, I'm sure it will be. Yeah, I think what was interesting when I listened to it was this this feeling that you know the instruments were being up played in a non-classical way i mean they were they had this kind of you know sometimes a i don't I, I know if it's correct a breathy feeling or or mm-hmm. you could hear you could hear the breath if you know what i mean it was kind of it was kind of the person was coming through in it mm-hmm. and and i think that's kind of made it gave it maybe a lot more interesting gave it a lot more texture which is maybe the relationship to the pen on the paper the texture of the pen or something i don't i don't know but that's what it came over to me there was a lot of texture in each note which i think was took me a while to actually hear but i could the more i listened the more i got it so it was kind of interesting i think yeah i'm nodding here but your viewers can't see that yeah. um so yeah i i mean each player's part for this comes with like a a couple of sheets of instructions before before the music even starts about you know the, how to prepare themselves for some of these some of the techniques they have to do about the audible breathing and alternative mm. fingerings and some multiphonics for the instruments to produce more than one note at once and sort of rhythmicized vibratos using lips and the diaphragm in different ways you know it's just really having some fun with the the different ways mm. of producing sounds and and I think that's kind of interesting because you mentioned you know like people at school, that's not what you're taught to do any of that. You know you're you're taught completely the opposite, and and I kind of think that's a bit of a shame. Uh, I mean because there's so much more you could do with the instrument, and I, I it's it's kind of stayed. I, I think we said that already, but it, it's it's a shame that those things aren't explored about putting some personality into it a bit more. Yeah, especially with wind instruments, there is that direct connection with the breath of the performer. I mean, mm. especially on, on the recorder and the flute, which I suppose links to the the next piece really well, that was accidental, um, which is this um, piece um, called Take Back Two. 
So it's a sequel. Yeah. Well, tell us, tell us more. This is the Castella Quartet with Carla Reese's The Flautist, if I remember. Yeah. So first of all, the original Take Back um, was a, about a five minute long piece for big recorder, um, for bass recorder or contrabass recorder. So these are enormous big wooden boxes, basically. Um, and the recorder's probably got this most direct connection with the breath of all the wind instruments because it just goes straight into the mouth. There's no reeds in the way. There's no blowing sideways. And basically the air that comes through the player's mouth is the air that goes through the instrument. So there's a whole load of breathy effects, vocal effects, tongue effects, um, you know, vocalizations through the instrument. And it's quite groovy in that way. And this is a piece of mine, actually, the original um, take back, which has recently had like a whole load of interest in it and a load of performances um, um, in Amsterdam and um other places in Holland where the chord is really big and also in the UK and America um, because it's been championed by um, Sarah Jeffrey of Team Recorder who's possibly the internet's best known recorder player um, which is you know, a title to, to wear with pride. So it was originally written for um, uh, another recorder virtuoso, Emily Bannister. Um, and then this piece, Take Back Two, basically has at its core um, the original take back piece reimagined as a flute and string quartet piece um, and they don't really play as separate instruments it's not really not really hear the music as five instruments it's kind of like this meta instrument made of 16 bowed and plucked strings and a, and a blown pipe and it's played by five people all at once so you know always when the instruments are played or almost always they are they're being put together to make these, these combination sounds and it's it's almost like i've taken all the notes in the original take back and all the original gestures and and amplified everything and my process was like have you ever done this thing where you basically doodle on a on a piece of paper and you, you draw some lines and then you go and fill it in you do some cross hatching and some shading mm. and do some loops and circles within the within the loops and then they have different patterns of loops and shading themselves and it's just like that obsessively adding extra detail into what was originally quite skeletal but just like a solo player pushing air through one tube so <laughs> yeah when you hear the two pieces side by side you it probably not immediately apparent that, that they've got this this common ancestry i think you know maybe when you look at the dots and you know, kind of work out where stuff comes from you say, oh yeah that's mm. that phrase like buried in it uh, is this you know the skeleton it's bones of this piece were in this other one but take back two is about twice as long as the original there's a lot more going on just from moment to moment and going on through the whole piece and um yeah, I mean, I could, it's a piece I could talk about for ages. I mean, there's, it's got this process where ideas keep being developed as they're being exposed to our ears. So it's not like some sort of Beethoven piano sonata where it's like, here is an idea, and then I'm going to play it again, and then I'm going to develop it, and then I'm going to return to the original idea. It's more the case that as I'm showing the idea to the audience's ears, it's being developed right in front of them. It's mm, kind of like mm. it's a self-developing processes and everything kind of, you know, links into each other. It's, it is sectional, but all the sectionals blur together um, until eventually everything kind of just 
coalesces into this super groovy unison bit about oh, it's probably about four fifths of the way through so it's like all the instruments really groove hard together before it sort of dissolves mm. away again at the end it's a fun it, piece it, struck, it, it kind of struck me that it was i mean almost a little bit chaotic at the beginning i mean it's it although there's it's that there's a bit of chaos in each when they're playing together they, and it's it is like they're trying to sort of i got the feeling they were trying to work out what the other one was doing i know it sounds a bit weird but it was almost like they're all like okay where are we going with this where where, where are we heading and then it, as you say at the end it's sort of like, oh look we've all found the we've found the found where we want to be sort of thing and then it's like okay that, that's yeah. that's it sort of thing it's a Maybe that's not quite what you had in mind. No, that is that is kind of what you what you get with this continual development. Though you do feel that the music is always looking for the next step, and it's always shifting mm. and changing. And though, because you don't hear any repetition, and you don't, you know, all the material is similar rather than the same. It's, mm. it's you know, I don't think again. This this is another piece. Where I don't think there's any exact repetition. Every time something's coming back, it's been moved around in some way and you know the beat is is so broken in the piece as well it's it's so scatty i mean it'd be a great challenge to sit somebody down and watch it and say okay i want you to predict where the beat's going to fall in the next bar <laughs> there's a challenge for the for the listeners well as soon as it establishes a pattern it then develops that pattern and, and moves on to yeah. something new yeah yeah have a have a listen to to take back to yeah, um, let's let's do that. Let's do that now and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. Thank you. 
your your uh philosophy on on rhythm and pulse and it's uh, every composer approaches things uh really differently but are you are you groove based when you're when you're writing are you thinking in groove are you thinking in um collective kind of clang farbony like what are you what are you thinking mm, okay so a lot of my music it does groove quite hard i feel i mean there's a lot of very rhythmical stuff, like particularly like that last piece. Um, and I think the really most important rhythmical element in my music is about rhythmic emphasis. So it's not just about rhythms, but it's about the strong and weak forces there. So, you know, a lot of times when, we're, when composers and, and students and so on are learning about rhythm and talking about rhythm or writing rhythm, they're just thinking about lengths of notes, they're talking about durations. And they're talking about duration patterns and, and how music's metered and so on. And I think that the heart of rhythm is really about, and especially rhythmic groove, is about emphasis. So you set up a pulse and then lay some sounds across that pulse. And some of them are laid quite hard across that pulse. And some, and some are more gentle. And some are, some are long, sort of laid out sounds. And some are shorter and, and, and more precise. Um, and sometimes you have a sound that kind of leads into a, an impulse, you know, like it's like an uptick, like something that's pushed music forwards. And sometimes you have something that's like right on, on the, the pulse. And then you've got things which sit, sit off that, that syncopation. And, you know, I think it's the control of those elements against the pulse, which itself is moving around and creating patterns. It's, it's like where, where the music really dances. And I think there's a bit of an obsession with, with kind of dancing in a lot of my music. I mean, I've, if anyone's listening and they're a choreographer or they, they run a, a dance school or they are a dancer, they want to collaborate, then, then please do reach out because that's like something I really want to do is work with dancers because a lot of my music is so, you know, it's movement based. Mm. I, I want to I get people moving around on the stage when it's playing. I mean, it's not dum, 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 equal length rhythmic pulsations. Um, it's more like dun, da, dun, ba, 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 da, 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 dun, bam, ba, da, 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 da
and it's like I don't know, it just you know when you're writing it and you're putting the notes in the right place with the right with emphasis because it feels right. Um, suddenly, when I was writing this piece, um, people who had kind of watched me compose it like thought I was an absolute crackpot because I was making all these mouth noises, like for the recorder and flute articulations, clicking my fingers and tapping the table, going tuck a tuck a tuck a tuck a tuck. Do you feel? I mean, when you when you're putting these beats down, do you? Is that something you? I just wonder if you feel that you said you were interested in the dance. Do you actually feel them in your body? Is that kind of how how you feel it's right, or is it more head thing? If you know what I mean, is it? Do you sort of does that make sense? Do yeah, I way? don't know what you mean, and I think the answer is yes. Um, it, you know, it feels right in the head, and it feels right in the body as well. Mm. Um, and I, I think I do listen to a lot of you know dance music and 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 electronic music and music from other cultures which is not grounded in a let's take a big unit of time and divide it up into equal size small units of time which is what so much of you know western music is and then certainly when you go into the popular music world there is so much groove based stuff where it's like let's take everything and divide it into units of four and then subdivide those into units of four i'm like okay that's great i mean for what it does it's absolutely fine it's a really good starting point but there's a you know a lot of other fun things we can do with with groove and where emphasis lies and so on great um let's um let's move on to uh to another piece and this one is from an ep which came out in september of 2022 um yeah i already have to apologize people don't know this but i mentioned this to Flora. i said i think it was a fantastic ep and she said, you missed it in 2022. So yeah, hands up. I missed it. Sorry, Flory. Um, um, but it was called, the EP was called Harbings of Change. Yeah. And um, the piece we're going to do is Four of Swords. Now, this is all kind of tarot-related titles. It is. It's all super mystical. I mean, the, the expression that somebody used at the recording session was that the room was full of queer mystical energy, which is like <laughs> such a good term. So um, this is this is quite collective composition. So um, it's very much for that sort of jazz approach. But I was writing like the the head material and the outlines of each chart, and then giving the players loads of freedom to work around and with the notated material. So um, you'll see if it's, you know there's, there's some videos from from the session as well. And you know we all have music stands in front of us, and we're all we're all playing off the music. But there's also a lot of freedom to um interact um with improvisation and there's some overdubs and layering and editing there's all sorts going on there's some great studio work as well um mm. so, so how did the so how did it come about this ep and 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 this harbingers of change so how did you arrive at that I got a grant from um, Drake Music, which is a national um, sort of charity for disabled musicians. And um, uh, the, it really wanted something kind of on the theme of change and transformation. So this is this is a set of pieces which uh, I took a collective into the studio to produce. And each piece is based around the idea of a different tarot card and they are the tarot cards which deal with ideas of change or transformation. Um, 
so I think this particular piece, um, this is the Four of Swords, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I can't remember which track we decided to listen to. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. the Four of Swords. Um, yeah, this is a card which is all about um, sort of the preparation for, for change and, you know, that need to lie fallow before new growth and to, to take stock of the situation. Um, it's got that resting energy. Um, it's not a card of idleness. It's definitely a card of resting after a transformation or change or preparing for something to happen. You know, it's not a sit and do nothing. It's got that sort of interval energy about it. It's that break mm. in between the exciting things where you gather the strength and reflect on the past. So that's kind of like the, the whole vibe of this piece. Um, musically, it's based around um, a really simple, drawn-out, melodic idea. Um, it's this lovely modal um, saxophone solo from the beautiful Lara Jones, um, which then develops into a duet. And I've, I've actually mirrored the parts here so that like, when one instrument goes up, the other one goes down, basically. So then that's, that's mirrored by Amy Bryce, and they are um, playing alto flute on this recording. So whenever mm. Amy is going down, Lars going up, and and then you know, so they've, they've got this mirrored thing, and you know this is all this is all notated, and um, from there the music develops into this sort of ritual incantation of meditation. It's all very very sort of trippy and spaced out, and then the mm. music just finally sort of dissolves into this peaceful nothingness. Um, it's, you know, a great pleasure working with this enormously talented quartet musicians. Um, I've mentioned um, Lara and um, I've mentioned Amy, but um, also as Maya Lee Rossenwasser um, on, on piano. And they're um, a great um, improvising pianist, um, but not from a jazz background, just sort of improvising contemporary classical uh, musician, um, a very good reader as well. Um, fab person to work with in the studio, and then um, there's me on. Um, I'm on drums on this recording. Um, mm. This is my my sort of my other career is you know, as a percussionist, uh, a drummer. So mm. particularly in sort of like jazz um, contexts and, and as well as classical and sort of orchestral uh, brass bands percussion. Um, I'm not really like a, a rock drummer. But you know, I'm quite at home on the on the drum kit. So yeah, that's the that's the piece. It's 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 meditative. It's this big space preparing for transformation, and that just seemed very very relevant to this super queer bunch of musicians. Yeah, sounds good. Well, let's take a listen to it. I must say, we're going to just hear the one piece from the EP, but I would recommend listeners to listen to all the pieces because I think they work together really well. I think that's one of the things about the the sort of story you're telling, but we'll hear one of the pieces, but go do go look it up.
maybe as a kind of a wrapping up final questions, because I know we're coming to the end of our our time. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts on like improvisation, improvisation is as a, a self-affirmed control uh, based composer. What, what do you think about the uh, process of like co-creation and, and improvisation and, and working collectively? Yeah, I mean, I love um, improvisation. I love improvising myself. I love working with um, other improvisers. Um, I love listening to other people improvise. Um, and I think almost all of my music does include um, some improvisation at some point, whether that's in the sort of development of the music or, um, you know, often in, like, in the actual performance as well. Um, and of course, the thing with improvising is um, you get a very different result, kind of depending on, on the play you're working with. So when you are working, like I said before, like particular musicians in mind, then you can get like a particular result from, you can talk to them and say like, that thing that you do, I want, I want that, some of that stuff. Or <laughs> you know what, I just trust you to do, to do your thing here. And I think there is something about trusting the musicians to actually do what you want them to do if you give them like some good pointers, I think if you just say like, do whatever you want, that's really hard. Just, just kind of do some music, just play some music. But like with some, something as a starting point, some guidelines and a shape. And I think a lot of improvising musicians really enjoy having that kind of guidance and collaboration. Yeah. I mean, it does sit very weirdly with my, my detail obsessed control freakery. Um, and I, I think that sort of juxtaposition of the two, two things is like interesting in itself. I mean, I, I've written pieces which have like almost completely free improvisation, like happening at the same time as some very, very precisely notated, very technically dense stuff. And, you know, it's just, it's just a vibe sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> well, it clearly works. I mean, yeah. your 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 juxtaposition of, of ideologies clearly produces some really wonderful things. Yeah, well, juxtaposition itself is super interesting. I think everything changes in meaning through its context, and like the more the more you can do with that context, like the sort of message you can put into that juxtaposition. Do you, but, do you think it you also know, challenges you to some extent having this? Having this juxtaposition, I mean, you know, your 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 control freak plus you plus having to let that go in some way. Do you think that actually is kind of like um, I don't know, kind of like a a, a stimulation to to you? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. Challenges is the right word. I don't I don't need to look for any more challenges in my life. I think <laughs> you know, just being alive in England and Britain in 2023 oh, yeah. brings everyone in the country enough challenges, whatever their you know background or situation um but uh yeah yeah um there is a stimulation i suppose in in looking for the difficult stuff and 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 mm. stretching and reaching for the next thing and never being content with with where i am i mean that's probably like one of the reasons i've been well without being too modest quite successful over the last couple of years um it's because i'm always reaching out for the next thing and, and trying to do one better you know but i think that's a challenge isn't it i mean i think that is what 
what people who are good at their art or science or anything do. They're always challenging themselves to go one step beyond what is comfortable. Yeah. Well, I never don't want to be comfortable. Comfortable sounds boring, doesn't it? Comfortable is boring as hell. Yes. I know. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, kind of not where we are, I think. Kind of good. No. So, so what's some um, twenty? We've talked about what you did in twenty twenty two and a little bit of twenty twenty three. So, what's what's the challenges coming for the rest of the year? Um, next the year, so rest of the year. So we've got um, collaborations coming up with three different brass bands, um, including um, with Newbury Spring Festival. Mm -hmm. um, have this premiere coming up soon at um, Wigmore Hall with the Kyan Quartet through the RPS scheme. Um, performances at Vale of Glamorgan Festival. Um, and then just a, a whole load of, of writing. I'm doing a load of writing at the moment. Um, I'm working on a PhD. I'm doing some reviewing, doing some articles. So a lot of thinking about music and writing about music and reading about mm -hmm. music. Um, and possibly um, one thing I think is, is maybe another opera. Ooh. But, um, you know, that's a, that's a chat for another time before we get into really yeah, big, long topic. Good. Yeah. The last time was such a hit. So, um, I've got some ideas for a very sci-fi kind of opera and the, some people that Love want to, yeah, some people that want to perform it and some people that want to produce it and direct it. I just need to find someone that wants to pay for it because <laughs> opera is about as expensive as it gets. Too true. I know. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, Flory, it's it's been a pleasure to have you on the show again, and thank you for bringing us up to speed with the myriad of things you've been doing over the past year or so. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I'm becoming a regular guest. <laughs> we yeah, hope so. Well, yeah. I mean, if as long as you keep writing good music, we'll keep having you back. Well, thank you very much. I'll try to keep it good. I may just keep writing music and then, you know, the good or not can be like up to other people to decide. I'll find it speed. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.